This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. Written and narrated by number one New York Times bestselling author and broadcast journalist, Savannah Guthrie. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. It's week five of a five-part series here on Grace Enough Podcast. And I hope you have been stretched and challenged and encouraged as much as I have. Week one, Lena Abiyajamra shared her journey of the near deconstruction of her own faith after a series of events that included church hurt. Instead of turning away from God, she pressed in, bringing her honest questions to Him and finding strength to press on in His Word. In week two, Amy Fritz shared her family's experience at Ramsey Solutions and how her husband's dream job ended up breaking their hearts and teaching them a lot of the problems behind the curtain in some Christian organizations. Then I sat down with Caitlin Beatty for week three, where we discussed her new book, Celebrities for Jesus, how personas, platforms, and prophets are hurting the church. Last week, Dr. Diane Langberg was on the show, and she encouraged us to take time to listen to victims of trauma and abuse. She shared a few things she's learned in her 50 years of counseling with a focus on the abuse of power in the church. To end the series, I invited Wade Mullen on the show. Wade comes on to talk about impression management and how the techniques we employ can be harmful to the church. Wade served as a pastor for 10 years before becoming a professor and author. His career path has been impacted by his personal pastoral experience. Leadership dismissed abuse claims that he presented to them that were impacting the teens and families he served. He shares a bit of that story today, along with healthy ways we can move forward. Wade's debut book is Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. You can find it linked along with other books, podcast episodes, and articles pertaining to spiritual hurt at graceenoughpodcast.com slash spiritual hurt. Good morning, Wade, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Good morning, Amber. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much for being here. Let's go ahead and um, jump right in. I always love to have my guests just tell a little bit about how they came to know Christ. Like, when did you start walking with Jesus? What was your early faith experience like? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in a Christian home, came to believe in the gospel at a young, at a young age, made a profession of faith in Christ. And then I got into my junior high, middle school years and began to do a lot of, you know, searching, you know, myself, asking a lot of questions, reading the Bible for myself. And that was a very validating time in my life. And then in high school, I uh, started living out my faith in a more practical and, you know, being on the front lines way. Mm-hmm. I was engaged in a 
person club in our public high school and began to lead that club in my sophomore year or so of high school and led a Bible study then and did a lot of evangelistic outreach. And that was, that was a time in which I started asking the question, is this something that, you know, God would have me do long-term and should I go to college to study the Bible? Yeah, right, right. So then I ended up going to a Bible college and studying to be a pastor. And so that's, that's kind of the early years of my life. And here I am in my mid thirties, almost 40. And I've been on that path since. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Pennsylvania. So the coal region of Pennsylvania, mountains of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I grew up in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. And while they're far away, there are a lot of similarities between those two areas. So, so I definitely get that. Well, it it was your work in the local church early on that really formed a lot of what you're doing now. It was your experience there. And when you really learned a little bit more about spiritual abuse in the church and how easy it is, or I shouldn't say easy, it's a lot more frequent Mm -hmm. that we protect the people who are doing the abusing versus the victims. And so... Will you just share a little bit about what your experience was that kind of opened your eyes to that and what set you, you know, on the path to pursue what you're really doing now? Yeah, I was a pastor on staff at a church in Pennsylvania for about seven to eight years and had a wonderful experience uh, serving people there, primarily serving the youth there. And at some point, I began to receive stories of mistreatment and abuse of all types and did what I could to follow the appropriate steps, you know, mm-hmm. of reporting and acting on their behalf and discovered that there were some in positions of authority above me who seemed to want to shut those stories down mm-hmm. because they threatened something and perhaps threatened the reputation of the church or threaten important people in the church. And that was eye-opening for me because, of course, you don't expect that from shepherds. You don't expect that from leaders that you look up to and trust. And then had to make the difficult choice, you know, do I do I fight this system? Mm-hmm. Do I call them out? Do I report them? Do I go to higher authorities? You know, wh- what's my what's my role in this? What are some options I have? And then found that as I began to take those steps, I became a target myself, which I think Mm -hmm. people can expect if they decide to oppose unethical conduct. And that was a difficult two years then of walking that road. Yeah. And I reached a point where my wife and I prayed about it and we felt like we had done all that we could do at the church to follow all the appropriate processes and steps to bring darkness into the light. And we decided to then we needed to leave. We couldn't stay Mm -hmm. while still maintaining our own integrity. And so we then went through that difficult process of leaving a church that we loved, people we had come to love, Mm -hmm. uh, a home that belonged to the church. And it it was then a period of about a year in which I was out of work and looking for something and ended up finding a job teaching at a seminary and directing a MDiv program. And so that was, that was a blessing. Um, so I just had a lot of personal experience over years of yeah. hearing people's stories of abuse, seeing the 
trauma that people experience in those settings and suffer, advocating for them, seeing the response of leadership and people in power to that, becoming a target of their conduct. And then at the same time was going through a PhD program and studying the ways in which evangelical organizations respond to what are called image-threatening events or scandals and how they use impression management strategies, you know, tactics of communication to try to defend their behavior in order to maintain an image that they want to maintain for an audience. And so that academic study was also very eye-opening because I was seeing how the tactics that the literature describes and the tactics that I'm seeing show up in the cases that I'm studying are very similar to the tactics that I'm seeing show up in abusive situations and used by individual abusers and used by those in positions of power who are enabling that abuse or covering mm -hmm. it up. And so that was a you know, big light bulb moment for me. So you were in the PhD program studying this at the same time you were pastoring? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then after I left the pastorate, and was out of work for a year and then moved into the higher ed field, mm -hmm. I was finishing my dissertation during that time. So mm -hmm. I took about two years after I'd left the church to finish the dissertation and complete that PhD program. Well, and it's something interesting that I've heard recently. Well, I've heard it in the past, but just something that came to light recently is someone said, why would anybody speak out against an organization that's doing such great things? And while that may not apply particularly to your church, a lot of people from the outside probably thought this is a healthy place. And so I guess my question for you is that seems to be more normal um, that why would you speak out against, you know, an organization that seems to be doing such great things how do you respond to that? Well, I think there are options that people need to consider. So in, in my case, there were matters that intersected with the law. And so I was appealing to those in law enforcement and then lawyers were involved. And eventually I appealed to state legislators. And so I really, you know, there were people that I could appeal to in my case. And so, right. And, which is and not always true. Right. Which is not always true. So one of the things that I suggest that people do is, is before they necessarily go to the public, you know, post something online is they think about whether or not there's a next highest authority that they can appeal to first. And then also in our case, you know, we were at a church and after we left, we decided so we're hearing from a lot of people from the church, even leaders who are wanting to get to the bottom of things. They, they, they have a right to know that what's true. They have a right to know why we left. And so we decided mm. to go to the board of elders and tell them we're, we're going to meet with the people and we're going to tell them okay. our story and we're going to tell them why we left. And we'd like you to be there. We knew that we had that option. We mm -hmm. can meet with whoever we want, but we wanted to let the board know that we were going to do that. And so then they um, offered to host that in a sense. And they called a meeting at the church and invited us to come and speak to the church. This was six months or so after we left. 
And so that was our way of going to the next highest authority at that point, mm-hmm. which would have been the members of the church. And so we then had an opportunity to face to face meet with the congregation and with the elders there, tell them our story, um, mm-hmm. the parts that we could tell, and confront the elders as well in the presence of the people and say, here's here's what the elders have done. Here are the policies that were in place that should not have been in, in place. And, and here's why we left, right? So that was a very healing experience for us, very difficult, but healing yeah. because then truth was finally acknowledged. The people heard the truth. The elders acknowledged that what we shared was truthful. And then they brought us back a couple of weeks later and in the presence of the church apologized to us. Wow. And yeah, right. And so then there was restitution that was made and there mm. was reconciliation. And, and we had then have, had the opportunity to, in, in the presence of the people, um, extend forgiveness to the elders and embrace them. So that was all public in a sense. Yeah. But it but it wasn't out there on the web, but right. it was in the presence of the congregation. Right. Now, I do think though that if people don't have that opportunity, so that you may not have elders who are willing to do that. I mean, right. that's part of the one of the amazing things about this story is that the elders were actually okay with that. Mm -hmm. They were actually allowing that to happen and they were there and they were. So that I think in most cases isn't going to happen Mm -hmm. um, or it's not safe for somebody to to do that. And so I do think there is an an ethical and moral basis for somebody reaching a point where they decide it is time now to share the story with a journalist or to Mm -hmm. share my story on my website or on social media to, so that I no longer have to hold this secret myself. You know, I'm going to share this. It's going to be out there. And so that light can shine on this institution or on this person. And most people who do that are doing that because they, they really desire for there to be light so that others are safer for that. Mm -hmm. You know, they're concerned about others who might be victimized by an abusive individual or an abusive institution. And so this is a way in which they can warn others. And so, right. so I do think there is a, there is a place for place that. For that. Mm-hmm. All that to say, I think there are steps that somebody can take and they can ask the question, is there another, is there a higher authority that I can appeal mm-hmm. to at this point? I like that. I mean, because it is, I think sometimes we, we can be guilty of sharing in our anger. Right. And so it's good to kind of pull back and just think through what's the next step um, in this process of not just responding out of anger, but out of like, I want to protect people and I want the right thing to be done, right? This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So. Whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, 
Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So you did, like you said, you studied a lot of these impression management techniques. I just want to know a little bit about like, what is that? And how do you feel like those can become harmful when the body of Christ really employs those? I came across a book that was written by a Canadian sociologist named Irving Goffman called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And he published that in 1959. And in that book, he basically lays out this extended metaphor of of a theater where you have a stage, you have a curtain that divides the stage between the front stage and the back stage. You have an audience in this theater and you have actors on a stage. So he goes on to describe how as we go about our everyday lives, we are like actors on a stage and we're adjusting our behavior in order to satisfy the expectations of an audience. And somebody can read how the audience is responding to the actors on the stage. Like an actor can then adjust the, you know, their script or change the way in which they're talking or behaving in order to maintain an audience, right? But it's kind of an act. And when they go behind the curtain, then they can relax. They no longer have to maintain that performance. And if the audience were to see what was happening behind the curtain, they might get a different impression of the actors and the one that they had when the actors were in front of the curtain, right? Yeah. So he lays out this metaphor. And I think it's true of our everyday lives that when we walk out the door and we're going to work, we're going to the grocery store, we're going to church, there are ways in which we are acting to manage the impressions others are forming of us. You know, maybe we want them to think of us as professional when we're in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, or we want them to think of us as polite, you know, when we're out in public at the grocery store or in line, you know, we managing the impressions people are forming of us in one way or another as we go about our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. However, it can become unethical and it can become dangerous when there are things that are happening behind the curtain of our lives that are dark, that are evil, Mm -hmm. that are wrong, that are deceptive but we're giving the people that matter to us, you know, the people, let's say, who are in our church and we're in a position of trust in that church as a, as a pastor, as an elder, or as a volunteer, we're giving those people still the impression that there's nothing behind the curtain you know, that they should be concerned about. And so mm-hmm. then, then you see the split between someone's public persona, their public life and their private life. So you have this hypocrisy happening. And that's really what I'm looking at and trying to help people understand is when does that impression management, you know, when does what you can see as an audience member and hear become something that ought to raise red flags? When do you know whether or not somebody is from the stage or when they're given an opportunity to give an account for their behavior? When do you know if what they're saying is truthful and Mm -hmm. sincere and in line with the character that you expect of that person. 
so that's really what the book is about, what the research has helped me to try to get to the bottom of is what are these impression management tactics and what can we look for in order to help us determine whether or not somebody or an institution is worthy of our trust? Yeah. I mean, and that's the question, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. because we've seen it, we've seen it. So it just seems like right now we're just getting bombarded one after another of people falling. And part of that I do think is we see it so much more too, because of celebrity culture, we've always placed people on pedestals, but now the pedestal is out there for the whole world to see. Um, And so I guess my question is because we all do use these strategies, like it's not like it's just churches, of course, doing it in the name of Christ, I have a deeper problem with (laughs) personally as a follower of Jesus. But I also know there are things that I do that if people were to come and really see me in my home, they are not going to see what you might see at church 100% of the time. So some of that is normal. What is that line? Uh, Where is it where people are actually trying to make progress and be spiritually formed Mm -hmm. versus no, you are abusing power and this is not okay? What are some of those things? You know, I think the line is in the motivation and in the heart of the person who's engaging in that impression management behavior, uh, which which I know that often we can't see that. Um, Mm -hmm. Often that doesn't become apparent until later. But the reason why I bring that up is because I think it's helpful for people to understand that an abusive person or an abusive, harmful institution ends up targeting people and ends up seeing people as objects to be used for their own benefit. Okay. And, and so there's a purpose behind the impression management tactics that is harmful and harmful to others and is self-centered. So let's say somebody wants to enter into a position of trust at a church because they think that's going to give them some kind of respect that they've never had, or they think that that's going to give them some fame or prestige that they're looking for, or they want money and they think this will be a lucrative you know, job. Whatever it is that they're looking for, there's some kind of greed there. And so they might enter into that position. And what they want then is to build trust with people because they know that in that position, people aren't going to follow them, give them money, give, it, give them whatever it is they're looking for if they don't trust them. And so they might engage in impression management behavior to coerce that trust. So they mm-hmm. might go over the top to tell people why they're trustworthy. And they might, they might talk a lot about their successes. So they might talk a lot about their gifts or their anointing or their calling. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a self-promotion there that is intended to get people to think of them in a favorable light so that they end up trusting them. Or on the other side of that, they might look at the audience, you know, let's say it's congregation members and begin to flatter them, you know, begin to promote things about others. They might say things about, you know, somebody's work ethic or say things about their appearance or say things about uh, their past successes and use these flattering over the top expressions of praise in order to, again, try to solicit that trust, Mm -hmm. or they might give gifts, or they might go out of their way to help. So they're, 
engaging in all these things that I call charms in the book in order to, in, in order to coerce that trust out of people. So it's hard though, when you're mm-hmm. experiencing that kind of behavior, which looks maybe normal, it feels good. It's hard to hear that and see that and make any conclusions about what that person, you know, why they're doing that, what they might be after, whether or not there's a, there's a, an intention to harm others. So there's all these impression management behaviors, mm-hmm. but here, here's what I will say at this point before I stop, is that when somebody is engaging in impression management behavior in order to disempower people, in order to trap them, in order to get something from them that they want that they don't have, those charms will at some point transform into things like intimidation mm-hmm. and threats. And so at some point, fear will enter into that environment or enter into that relationship and people will begin to realize, oh, is this person dangerous? Is this person really desiring our good? Because now we're starting to see behaviors that cause us to fear for our well-being. So you, mm. you'll see a pattern over time. And that purpose, I think, of that you know person who's using that impression management begins to reveal itself over time as people get closer and closer to that person or to that institution. I think that's really helpful to think about how the self-promotion, you know, if that's all it is, sometimes it doesn't look all that bad, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a combination of these things. And then sometimes I think it's hard for people to believe this person is different than what they are in front of a big group when you're not the one who's getting really close to the person. So we've seen this in instances like Amy Fritz has been on the show to talk about her experience with Ramsey Solutions. Well, if you're a part of the large group, you may not see the same thing as someone who is a little bit closer to the person in power. I think we see the same thing with Mark Driscoll. I think we've seen it with all of these people. Like it's a lot of times the people who get really close that see a lot more of the details. I mean, is that even your experience? You are close to people on staff, obviously, and you're seeing them respond in a way and the rest of the congregation is just kind of clueless. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the case in most situations certainly was true for us. And that then puts the person who has, let's say, gotten a glimpse behind the curtain and has seen somebody's true colors, right? That puts them in a very difficult position Mm -hmm. because nobody believes you. Right. You know, and what do you do with that? Because if they're still in that position of trust, if they're still a pastor getting up on stage every Sunday morning to preach a sermon, you know, then that typically means that there's still a following. You know, there are people who view that person as full of character and walking with Christ and a good shepherd that is there to serve them with an integrity. And so if you come along and you offer something that might disrupt that view that people have of that pastor or that person who's in that position of trust, then, yeah, you know, people may turn on you. People may Mm -hmm. hear what you're saying and they can't reconcile that. And so they might conclude, well, you must be mistaken or Mm -hmm. you must be confused or you must have had a bad experience and now you're seeking revenge or Mm -hmm. you must be bitter or they're going to come up with some kind of narrative that helps them maintain the impression that they've 
had of this person who's in this position of trust, you know, so, so it is, I think it happens, you know, all over the place. And it's a very difficult situation for an individual or a small group of individuals who have experienced, let's say, how this person acts behind closed doors when they're confronted, Mm. or how they act when somebody says no to them, or how they act when they don't get their way. So maybe only a few people have actually seen that and witnessed that. Well, that puts them just in a really difficult spot because people can't believe people haven't seen that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, what we see is this image. Hmm. Well, something I love about the description of your book, something's not right. And I'm going to read it because I think it really resonates with people. It says, maybe you don't know for sure. All you know is something feels off when you think about a certain relationship or interaction with an institution or an organization. You feel alone and confused, but calling it quote unquote abuse feels extreme and unsettling. A label for what happens to other people, but not you. You can't shake the feeling that something's not right. I haven't had it happen personally to me, but I've seen it and I've thought there is something that is not right in that situation. Like I can just see it and I know it. So when that feeling arises in someone, how would you encourage them? And I think you've shared a little bit of this, but to press into that feeling and try to identify what isn't right without, you know, just going, absolutely, this is abuse, you know, without going over the top. Like, how do you press into that to really identify what's not right? I think if people reach that point where they're wondering, is something in the shadows here lurking that might be threatening? Is there something that is being kept hidden from this congregation or from me that I ought to know about? Like, is there some danger here? Is something not right? I think if people reach that point, then they're likely reaching that point because they are receiving some kind of communication, Mm -hmm. whether it's verbal or nonverbal, whether it's clear or ambiguous, there's some kind of communication that's coming their way. And they're trying to interpret that. And as they're interpreting that, they're beginning to, to have these red flags. And I think that it's helpful to be able to put some language to those interpretations, like to to maybe write down, okay, here's here's what doesn't seem mm-hmm. right to me, and to see if you can actually articulate that, because that can be challenging to actually yeah. articulate it and name it. And then maybe, you know, if there's somebody who is safe that you can go to and confidentially be able to express these concerns to, let's say, a therapist right. or a counselor, and somebody too who might be able to affirm that, say, yeah, no, that's not normal, right? You're not seeing that wrong. That is concerning. Um, That is behavior that somebody shouldn't be engaging in. So that can be affirming or can relieve some concerns. And somebody with insight might say, well, you know, I'm I'm not sure there is something there. I think most times, you know, that sense that something's not right is a response to concerning communication that somebody is receiving in some form. And then if it gets to the point where, you know, there are others who are in that environment with you, 
and they might be experiencing some of the same reservations and hesitations. And I think there is a place and time. And again, this gets you know very uh, tricky, and everything needs to be done in an ethical way. But mm-hmm. there might be opportunity to talk to others who are in a similar situation. And sometimes a a conversation like that can be revealing as well. And that's often sometimes how things break open is somebody somebody begins to actually voice to another person, here's what I'm experiencing. It seems odd to me. It seems off. I feel afraid when I'm in this meeting or when I'm around this person. And another person says, yeah, actually I had this experience, Mm -hmm. then you hear a story that actually is a story of what you think might happen to you if you keep walking down this road, right? Mm. So, so these stories then can come become linked together. And so I think that's a possibility as well. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's just not black and white. No, I laugh in a serious conversation only because it's just I want the black and white so bad, you know, I want it so bad so that We don't have people who are victims who aren't getting justice and that we don't have people who are being accused who aren't doing what they're being accused of either. You know, it's a it's a both and there. And so with that said, we do have the tendency to not believe victims. And so we talked a little bit about why that is, because our impression or our experience has been different than their experience. But what about like, is there this risk of us blowing up and making it more than what it is when it comes to abuse? Um, Because I feel like it's something that's become, I'm grateful we're becoming more educated and we're starting to notice it and say, these things are not okay. This is bullying. This is like, you don't get to act this way towards people. But do we also run the risk of overinflating this and saying, well, this is abuse when it's just normal conflict? Yeah, I mean, I think there are risks always of saying things that aren't true. Yeah. You know? And so that's what I always go back to is, you know, is, is is what's true. And impression management can show up in every conversation and mm-hmm. every interaction. And so somebody might, in an attempt to make another person seem worse than they really are, use impression management tactics to accomplish that. Mm. I do think that that's rare, at least in my experience, it takes somebody a while to actually see clearly how bad the abuse is. Mm. They typically don't rush to a point where they are seeing it in a worse light. It typically takes people time to actually be able to face and ascertain the severity and the scope Mm. of the impact and the abuse. I think one way that we can you know, protect ourselves from going too far when at least let's say we are in a place where we know that something's off, we know that something's not right, but maybe we don't know what the other person or the institution, you know, the leader's motives are. Mm -hmm. We don't really know whether they're safe is to be able to differentiate between what's being communicated to us and how we're receiving that and how we're interpreting that and what the person or the institution is actually trying to communicate or what their real purpose is. So I'll give an example from the academic world. I served on a committee hearing appeals from students who received all kinds of corrective action, including 
hearing appeals from students who had been accused of plagiarism. And I also, as a professor, have dealt with that where students have plagiarized a paper. And the way that I handle that is by going to that student and asking them to give an account for the evidence. So here's the evidence. Here's here's the source. Here's your paper. Can you explain this? And a lot of times what I would hear is some kind of, from the impression management literature, call it an excuse, particularly a type of excuse called denial of intent, you know, where they might say, yes, you know, I can see that, yeah, that's, that's not my work, but I didn't intend to plagiarize. I, I, I just didn't put the citation in or mm. something like that, or I didn't know that it was plagiarism. So there's some kind of denial. So here's what I'm getting at is if I receive that kind of excuse, and I would typically say something like, regardless of whether or not you intended to plagiarize, here's what you need to know about what that communicates to somebody who actually was the author of that material. Mm. It communicates to that author, I can take this from you, and I can claim this as my own. And then it communicates to your audience that this is my idea, this is mine. And so your behavior communicates this to various people, and you need to recognize that and own that. And as a, you know, in, in a seminary setting, as a person who's entering into a field where one of your main functions is to communicate, that needs to be taken seriously. And mm-hmm. even though this may not be something that you intended to do, there's still going to be a consequence, you know, for this. Mm-hmm. You're still going to get a zero, a zero on this paper, right? It may not be a failure for the course or that kind of thing, but there's going to be some consequence, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting at is you may not need to make conclusions about somebody's purpose or motive to at least be able to say, here's what your behavior communicates to me. And I think leaders especially need to be able to hear that and mm. respond appropriately to that. And, and so that's just a way in which you know you can be truthful about an aspect of the behavior without necessarily reaching conclusions that you may not be able to reach about somebody or an institution. Well, and isn't that, doesn't that speak a little bit to quote unquote, this cancel culture thing where it's like, there are some times when someone does need to be taken down off of their platform and not given that space anymore, not because they need to be canceled completely. Um, There's forgiveness for those people, but you did harm someone. And part of the consequence is that you don't get platformed in that way anymore. I mean, what would you, what do you say to that? Well, every situation is different, you know, yeah. and there's there's so many different um, ways in which abusive behavior, you know, shows up. Mm-hmm. And what one of the things that I'd like to see happen is that our institutions, our leaders, for them to be re, be able to respond to early indicators of abusive behavior and respond well to those who are harmed early on mm. so that they don't reach a point where the abuse has worsened over time and there have been multiple people who have been harmed by that abuse. And the way in which I think that can happen is if leadership can have the moral courage and the discernment to see an abusive act committed by a pastor that might not get that person 
disqualified right. you know, for life. Yeah. But it is an opportunity to confront that pastor and to say, when you stood up behind the pulpit last week mm. and you inserted into your sermon a joke that was demeaning yeah. you know, to somebody in the audience or wasn't thoughtful or seemed to come from a place of personal frustration, you know, mm. it, again, it depends on what that is. Right. But let's say it's a it's a it's a common in a meeting even you know yeah, that a pastor absolutely. Goes, right and a, a, a lot of times leaders will just overlook that or just mm-hmm. they don't want to do anything about it or they confront it but there's no real consequences I think those are the kinds of things that leadership can confront early on but then seek to get to the get to what's underneath that mm-hmm. and and to ask the question why did you feel the need to say that. You know, right. where, where is that coming from? What's going on there? And we want you to take some time off, you know, to, to figure that out because you're in this position of authority. You are communicating to others, your words carry weight mm-hmm. and we can't afford to put people in a place where they might suffer because of your thoughtless, careless, you know, words, you know, so right. that, that can't happen again. And so we're going to ask you to take some time off and we're going to, so there can be, and we're going to make you, you know, go through a process of making amends with, you know, with that person, if they're willing to do that. Because I think that when we're looking at an abusive, a case where, okay, there has now been clear violations over time, there's been abuse over time, that you can look back to the very beginning often, and you can see red flags. Yeah, you can see a little threat. Leaders, little th- yeah, right. That leaders didn't act on, and then what happens is that if that person really is um, walking down this road of becoming more and more abusive, then they learn what they can get away with, what leaders around them will tolerate. They learn mm-hmm. how they can escape accountability, mm-hmm. and so if that if that isn't brought into check, then a person can continue to become more and more abusive over time. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that what accountability is, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a whole thing we could definitely go down for a long time. But um, Wade, to close out, I just want to ask if there's somebody listening who is at this crossroads of, I want to, you know, stand up and walk away or confront or, you know, however we want to frame that up versus I'm just going to kind of tuck my head and sneak out or just not say anything uh, when it comes to something that's going on in their own situation regarding harm, abuse, or something they see around them. What encouragement would you give them right now or challenge maybe? Yeah, I think one encouragement that I would give is to know that, you know, you're not alone. I think when people go through an experience like that, they often feel isolated and they feel alone. And while they might not have the support of those immediately or, you know, around them, there are people out there, you know, who have walked through similar experiences, who have walked through, and what I mean by that, who have walked through situations where they find themselves feeling uh, uncertain, you know, about whether or not this is a place that they can stay fearful of what might happen to them, confused because they don't know what's true. And I, one of the things that I've been encouraged by since I've stepped more into this kind of work is just knowing that 
now there are many people out there who have walked these kinds of roads and they have they have transcended their own abusive experience and they have transformed that into a gift that they now offer to others and mm. are willing to help those who reach out and and then of course there's often you know people who are trained mental health professionals trauma informed yeah. counselors who are also uh, doing wonderful work and and so i guess my encouragement then is to know is just to say you're not alone and there may be people who you can reach out to that could be of help to you. And then I think the other encouragement is that I do believe that light is stronger than darkness. I do believe Mm -hmm. that God can intervene in a divine way in Mm -hmm. a situation and bring about redemption. Mm -hmm. And it is hard to hang on to that belief, especially when you're in it and to cling to that hope. But it is an encouragement that I would offer. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Wade. I would tell everyone to, again, your book is Something's Not Right, but also on Wade's website, he has a list of resources, um, some videos that he is... He's been filmed while on stage that I would say are very, very helpful. He may not promote himself in that way, but I will. And so your website, Wade, if I'm not mistaken, is it is it Wade T. Mullen? Yes, correct. Okay. (laughs) I was like, oh, goodness, is there is it a T or is it a different one in the middle? And so um, go and check out those resources. But thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Amber. And thank you for covering this topic. If you've listened to all five episodes, I would love to hear a few of your takeaways. Send me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook at graceenoughpodcast underscore Amber. If you haven't listened to all five episodes, it's not too late. And if you're interested in more resources that address spiritual hurt, abuse, and trauma, go to graceenoughpodcast.com slash spiritual hurt. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.